You're listening to a sermon from Pasco Vale Church of Christ. To hear more of our teaching or to find out about the church, please visit our website, pvcc.org.au. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be uh, with you this morning. Great to have you uh, with us, uh, all those who come here regularly. And if you're a visitor or you haven't been here for too many times, it's great to have you uh, with us here as well. Uh, my name is Lou. I'm one of the pastors uh, at uh, Cross Culture Church in the city and also the pastor here at uh, Pasco Vale. Um, I uh, just wanted to mention, yeah, Gail, unfortunately, my wife Gail's not able to be here this morning. She's did a night shift uh, bringing more babies into the world last night, so she's not able to be here this morning. And uh, also, we're going away, actually. Um, we're going to Europe for about six weeks from the 19th of June, so in a couple of weeks' time. So this is actually my last time uh, to be here before uh, we go. We're planning to go to um, Italy and France and also to the UK as well, uh, visiting um, some friends and uh, some missionaries that we've got over there uh, as well and enjoying ourselves too, of course. <laughs> uh, we're in the middle of this six-part series that we've got. It's an overview, uh, looking at the big picture of the Old Testament. We call it Kingdom. It's all about the big picture view of God's great and wonderful kingdom. Now, of course, the Bible is one big book, but it's made up of 66 uh, little books or smaller books, of which the Old Testament contains 39 of those books. But the Old Testament's about three quarters of the Bible, which is quite a bit, really, isn't it? So it really is very significant in terms of God's word. So the reason that we're doing this series is to help all of us to get this overall understanding of the Old Testament. It's like getting a skeleton view so that we have this picture that we can place uh, parts of the Old Testament to. So that when you're at home, you know, you're reading one of the Old Testament books or when we're at church and we're preaching through uh, one of the books, you'll be able to uh, understand where it fits into the big picture of the Old Testament. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, uh, we thank you so much for all uh, of your word, uh, particularly the Old Testament. All of your words are so good and uh, really helpful, and uh, each one of them gives us life as well. Help us today as we uh, really marvel and delight in your word. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, now, the story that we've gone through so far, now over the past couple of weeks, uh, we've been looking at uh, God's kingdom and it began, of course, with God's perfect creation in Genesis chapter 1, where God created the very first human beings, Adam and Eve, and uh, they lived perfectly uh, with God, um, uh, the place that God made for them, actually, the entire universe, and in particular, of course, the Garden of Eden as they enjoyed God's perfect rule, God's perfect blessing uh, upon their lives. Uh, their, uh, and, of course, God made them to be there to care for the creation, for the world that he had made for them. And they were ruling over it on God's behalf. But then, then things took a rather bad turn in Genesis chapter 3 where people uh, who were made in God's image, well, well, they sinned. Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, Satan. Uh, they disobeyed God and they fell 
from being perfect. Uh, the way that God had intended them, he had made them to be. And uh, so they were banished from the Garden of Eden uh, from living in God's presence. Now, I want you to just to imagine for a moment, just to think. Now, if you were Adam or Eve, or if you're one of the people that came after Adam and Eve, what would you do to fix this problem that you find yourselves in? This problem of sin. I mean, after all, Adam and Eve, they had known, they'd experienced what it had been like to live in God's presence. I mean, they knew effectively what heaven was like. I mean, they would have told the other people who came uh, after them. Uh, I mean, they did hang around for some 900 years, so they were around for a while. So let's see. Sin came into the world because Adam and Eve, they didn't listen to God. They disobeyed him. And they failed to uh, resist the temptation that Satan put in front of them. So all we have to do is obey God and resist temptation. Now that doesn't seem too difficult, does it? So maybe we just need to try a little bit harder to do that. I mean, everybody do the very best that they can not to sin at all. I mean, have you ever tried to do that? I mean, tried not to sin. Not to sin in your thoughts or your uh, actions or your words, not to do anything wrong, even for uh, you know, like a short period of time, maybe just for one day. It can't be too hard, can it? Well, I tried. And you know what I found out? It didn't work. So I tried harder. And that's time, you know, I just put myself away, away from people because people are a problem, uh, away from devices because devices, they're a problem too. And I just, you know, just read the Bible and pray. But you know what? The mind. The mind can do all kinds of things, can't it? It seems that even doing what you know to be right, going against that, was just part of my nature, my very fallen nature. And, you know, I worked out that, well, sin, sin is it's, it's like quicksand. All of your efforts to get out of it just make it a whole lot worse. You just sink deeper into it. You need outside help to pull you out of the quicksand of sin in your life. Well, let's uh, get back into the book of Genesis. Now, Genesis, the word Genesis means the origin. It means creation or the beginning. Uh, this is where everything starts. And uh, after the fall of Adam and Eve, God gives one positive statement here. He says one positive thing about the future. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, he said to the serpent, actually, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here we get just 
just a glimpse really. It tells us that God has got a way to fix this problem. And at some stage in the future, God will send his saviour in the form of a human being, a son of Eve, to rescue all of, human, uh, all of fallen humanity. And he'll destroy the evil one. This is an image of Jesus coming as the son of a woman, Mary, dying on the cross in order to crush Satan and to free us from the bondage of sin. Because, you see, none of this caught God by surprise. God uh, knew the weakness of uh, human beings, of the human heart, of the human will. Even before creation, uh, God had this rescue plan already in mind. As Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 4 to 5 tells us, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. See, God has got this eternal plan to save his people and to restore um, creation back to perfection. And that's what the rest of the Bible is all about. But getting back to Genesis, after chapter 3, what happens next? Well, in Genesis chapter 4, you've got Adam and Eve. Uh, they had children, Cain and Abel. Now, Cain... Cain gets angry. He gets angry with God, actually. And God says to him in verse 7 there, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. But Cain doesn't rule over it at all. Instead, he kills his brother Abel, and God puts uh, him under a curse so that the ground would no longer yield its crops to him. Sin just multiplies, doesn't it? Then after many generations after this, uh, lots of people in the, uh, in the world, and God saw that the wickedness of uh, mankind was great and that every intention of his heart was only evil continuously. Wow. What an incredible description, isn't it? Unfortunately, it sounds a little bit like today, really, doesn't it? I mean, it's got really bad. God's patience runs out, so he destroys all the sinners uh, in his judgment by bringing this flood upon all of the earth, except for Noah and his family. Because Noah walked with God. As a righteous man, it says, blameless, it says, compared to his generation, compared to the other people. But it's not that Noah wasn't a sinner. So why on earth did God choose Noah? It tells us in chapter 6 and verse 8, Noah found favour. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So God tells Noah that he's going to rescue Noah and his family. 
uh, from this terrible destruction of a worldwide flood by an ark. Uh, Noah believes God and he builds the ark. And God uh, commits through a rainbow that he will never ever bring a flood upon the earth again. So, you know, when I see a rainbow, it just reminds me, actually it comforts me, reminds me of God's great promise that he's going to save us from our sins. I remember that, that God held back his anger against sin by saving Noah and his family so that God could deal with sin on our behalf by his son Jesus. That's what the rainbow reminds me of when I see it today. Then after this, uh, sin again seems to come to this high point in Genesis chapter 11 with the people having one language. It says there in Genesis uh, chapter 11 verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. People wanting to build a kingdom of mankind. A man-centred civilization without God. Why without God? Because I'm God. A tower with its top in the heavens. Just like when they were wanting to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Wanting to be like God themselves. The people. All of mankind here in one place, joined together, not united for God, but united to resist God together. And the place was a single city so that they would not be scattered. I mean, how would they be able to fulfill God's purposes for them in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28? To fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion over it if they're not willing to go into all the earth, they're not willing to be scattered. Instead of being blessed by God, they wanted to make a name for themselves. It's man being his own God, isn't it? Leaving the Lord totally and completely out of the picture. Building the tower was all about pride in themselves. Then we move to the promised kingdom of God. Now the Tower of Babel is really a backdrop then to God's promise to Abraham. In the story of Noah we see sin, we see judgment, but then it's followed by God's grace. In the Tower of Babel we actually only see the sin and the judgment. We've got to wait then another generation for God's promise to Abraham to see God's grace come in. Grace that will reverse the judgment of Babylon. Now, when we first hear of Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter 11, uh, he's the son of Terah. And uh, Terah names his son Abram. <clears throat> it's only later, in uh, chapter 17... Uh, that Angelina uh, read to us, 
that we uh, see that God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. But just to make it easier for me, I'm just going to refer to him as Abraham. Now, in uh, Genesis chapter 11, this is where God first calls Abraham. Now, Abraham was a descendant of Noah through uh, Noah's son Shem. And naturally, all of us are actually descendants of Noah, of course. Now, uh, Abraham was a son of an idolater who did not know God. So it's God who takes the initiative here, who calls Abraham out of the land where he was into relationship with himself and makes these three incredible promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. First of all, that God will give Abraham and his descendants the promised land of Canaan as an eternal possession. Secondly, that Abraham will have many descendants, as numerous as the sands on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And of course, Abraham at this stage had no kids. And thirdly, that God will bring blessing, that he'll bring redemption to all of the nations of the world through Abraham and through his descendants. Now we call this the Abrahamic covenant. It's the beginning of God's covenant of grace towards all of us. And specifically, it's there to save people for himself. And this is an everlasting covenant. It extends into the future to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it's not only, you know, this covenant, it's not just for Israel, but it's for all people. Everyone will have access to God's kingdom through the Messiah, who will be a descendant of Abraham. The promise is going to reverse all the effects of the fall uh, in Genesis chapter 3, and it's going to bring salvation to the world. This is the great promise. And John Stott, he put it like this. It may truly be said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises that God made to Abraham here. Then we move on to Genesis chapter 15. And here in Genesis chapter 15, we've got this ceremony that takes place that confirms a covenant between God and Abraham. And uh, in this ceremony, God alone is the one that walks between the halves of the animals. If you read it for yourself, you'll see that. Actually, at that time, Abraham was asleep while God walked through the uh, animal house. And this was part of a ceremony which said the person that walks through the house of the animals, they're the ones who are binding themselves to this covenant agreement. And therefore, this agreement was unconditional. It was made by God, but there was no commitment on Abraham's part that he had to do it. God takes the responsibility to make sure that the covenant will be kept. And that's good to know, isn't it? It's good to know that God, that God alone is the one who will make sure that this is going to happen. 
Doesn't depend on Abraham. Doesn't depend on anybody else. Doesn't depend on you or me. God alone made the promise. And then we move on to uh, chapter 17 that was uh, read to us. Now this is actually about 25 years after chapter 12. When God first made his covenant agreement with Abraham. And at this stage, now in chapter 17, Abraham is 99 and he's still waiting. He's still waiting to start uh, for God's promise uh, to make him into a great nation. He's, he's still waiting for that first, firstborn son. Faith is hard, isn't it? Faith is hard. Faith needs patience and trust. And love. Now you might think his uh, trust in God is failing at this point, and you're probably right. <laughs> but God here again affirms his commitment to Abraham. And then, you know, the greatest promise of all is made to Abraham here. Greater than the promise of land. In verse 8, he says, I will be their God. Wow. This statement, you know, about um, him being their God is repeated throughout the Old Testament by the prophets. For example, in Jeremiah 31 and 33, it says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is a, an important statement for the people of Israel. This talks about the fundamental relationship between God and between Abraham. They belong to each other. Just like we as Christians, we belong to God. And then later on uh, in this chapter, in verses uh, 9 to 14, uh, God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision. It says in Romans chapter 4 and verse 11, it was a sign of the faith he'd already shown to God's promise. The sign of circumcision. Just, just like today, you know, when we get baptised, it's a sign of the faith that we already have in Jesus. Uh, then in uh, verse, uh, chapter 17 and verse 21, God tells Abraham... That he's going to have a son next year, in a year's time. And this is when God's promise will begin uh, with a son called Isaac uh, from Abraham and Sarah's own flesh. And of course at this stage Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. Well that gives all of us hope, doesn't it? Uh, is that right, Roger? <laughs> and uh, then later on in chapter 21, Isaac is actually born. As of today, Abraham's covenant has been fulfilled in part. I mean, the nation of Israel was born and they've been preserved and they've been around for many, many hundreds of years. Other nations also came uh, from Abraham as well. And of course, the name of Abraham is greatly admired by many people uh, to this very day, particularly Jews and Christians and Muslims as well. But, you know, the greatest fulfilment of Abraham's promise is in Jesus Christ. 
As Paul, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul's not saying that the promises weren't for the rest of Abraham's descendants, but he's saying that the focus of God's promise was on one particular offspring, and that is Jesus Christ. And as we see in Matthew chapter 11, um, Matthew tracks Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Abraham. So Jesus becomes the focus of all of God's promises to Abraham. As God said to Abraham, and he knew all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this has happened through this one particular offspring, Jesus. And his promise of blessing, the blessing of the kingdom of God, is based on faith. We see it actually in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, when God, uh, speaking to Abraham, showed Abraham all the stars in the sky. And he said, that's how many descendants you'll have, Abraham. And it says, Abraham believed God. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith shows us that the promised kingdom of God is received by faith alone. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3 and verses 7 to 9, it tells us that we as Christians today who put our faith in Jesus, we are the sons and daughters of Abraham. We are the descendants by faith. I'm not his descendant um, by prodigy. Well, maybe I am, who knows? <laughs> but by faith, we are sons and daughters of Abraham. And what do we see in the life of Jesus? I mean, what did Jesus say about himself? Why did he come into the world? What was his message that he was giving to the people of his day? A lot of people will say, well, it was uh, Jesus' wonderful teaching about love. But really the core of Jesus' message we can see, for example, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, he said, The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. You know, those words, the kingdom of God, is used 53 times in the New Testament, in the Gospels. And uh, the kingdom of heaven, 31 times in the Gospel of Matthew. Almost always on the lips of Jesus. For example, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 43, Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this very purpose. The coming of Jesus was a giant, giant step in the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. The kingdom of God is now nearer than ever before. We're drawing closer to creation, going back to the time of creation again when 
God's rule is how people live under God's wonderful blessing. The promise to Abraham will reverse all of the stuff that happened at the Tower of Babel. It's a, it's a promise that's going to reverse the fall. And the rest of the Bible is all about how the promised kingdom of God happens. So, you know, what does all this mean for you and me today? Well, let me tell you something about myself. It might be a little bit strange for you to think, well, you know, this is a guy who's had a kidney transplant, but, you know, I don't really trust doctors. <laughs> and I don't like going to hospital. And I really particularly hate operations. <laughs> So what do you think would have happened if I'd said, well, forget the doctors. I'm going to do this transplant myself, thank you very much. Margaret, pass me the scalpel. Roger, you hold open this piece of skin, please. What do you think would have happened? Well, I probably wouldn't be here. Maybe I'd still be on dialysis, or maybe worse, or who knows? Well, you know, just like me not trusting doctors, so many people today refuse to trust God. They'd rather be self-reliant. They think they, think they can deal with their own problem of sin themselves. I'll fix it myself. I can do it. I can be my own God. But remember, you know, sin is like quicksand. It's all around you. It's thick. It's deep. And the more you try and get out of it yourself, the deeper you sink in. But you know, we have a promise. A promise from God. A promise that that culminated in Jesus Christ, the only one who can pull us out of that life of sin. Stop trying to do it yourself. Trust in the promise of God. Trust in Jesus. Only he can pull you out. Uh, one great theologian, R.C. Uh, Sproul, he put it like this. I don't always feel his presence, but God's promises don't depend on my feelings. They rest on his integrity. You see, I trust in the promise of God because I know him. And I know that I can trust him. What about you? What about you? Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we uh, bow, bow our heads before you this morning and give you thanks for making us in your own very image. You're so good. Lord, you are so loving and you are so kind to us. Thank you that you don't uh, leave us in our sin, but you make a way out for us.
thank you for giving us your son Jesus. Help us to live today by your very word and to live by all, all the promises that you give to us. In Jesus' name, amen.